this is UCD Business Impact, a podcast series from UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. And each week, we'll be joined by world-renowned academics from across the College of Business, as well as industry leaders, to discuss the most compelling business issues facing Ireland and the world. Our experts each week will offer insight, spark curiosity, and challenge you to rethink how you do business in a changing world. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, financial editor and journalist, and lecturer at New City College of Business. Now, sometimes in this pandemic, it can seem like time is almost frozen, almost stuck. Same walks around the block, same walks around the park, and of course, the same menu of Netflix options. Maybe that's just me, but time is passing on and things are actually happening. Uh, We did a podcast last August, which if you want to listen back is episode 19, and that was called Billion Dollar Molecules, and it was a special on vaccines. And at that stage, we were asking, will there ever be a vaccine for COVID-19? It was an interesting discussion with Professor Jean Rosier of UCD Business School, very tentative at that stage. Russia at that point, really interesting, was the only country at that stage that seemed to be getting anywhere on developing a COVID vaccine. At that point, President Vladimir Putin was actually trying out the Sputnik vaccine on his own children, which was a little bit unnerving. But now fast forward and all 40 year olds are going to be eligible to uh, make a registration for a vaccine here in Ireland. And in recent days, I got my own shot at the Aviva Stadium. No pain, no side effects, very little waiting down at the Aviva for the RNA vaccine. And it was very, very impressively organised by the volunteers who did such a great job at the vaccine centre. Now, occasionally you do hear that fatigue is a slight side effect of these vaccines. So hopefully I'll be wide-eyed and alert for all of these podcasts uh, because I have a very interesting guest to talk to. The podcast is being recorded just after breakfast time a little bit after, on a sunny day here in Dublin. And I figure that a large amount of you listening in will have spread the following product over your toast, and you'll probably do so again later in the day as you make a sandwich. Along with arguably Guinness, it's probably one of Ireland's most recognised brands that the country has ever produced. And no, it's not Bailey's. It is, of course, Kerrygold. And who could ever forget those ads from the 1980s? Andre. Well, I put a bit of butter on the spots, Andre. Ah, Kerrygold. Love this in Ireland too. It goes without saying, the best tasting butter in the world. And the man with the ultimate responsibility for this wonderful brand is my guest on today's Business Impact, and that is John Jordan, who is the CEO of Ornua. Now, as a schoolboy when I was young in Dublin here, we used to learn a lot about Irish business. And one of the things we used to learn about was the hydroelectricity project in Ardna Crusha the peatlands presided over by Board Namona, and the milk collected and sold abroad by Board Anya, the Irish Milk Board. It was one of those few names you actually saw in the Irish school books of the time, along with ESB and the previously mentioned Guinness. But that company is no more, and since 2015, its successor has been powering along, and that successor is Ornua, which described itself as the home of Irish dairy. With a turnover of 2.3 billion, it is one of Ireland's largest exporters, And the staff there know a thing or two, I think, about marketing Ireland overseas as 99% of its revenue, an incredible figure really, come from markets beyond these shores. So John Jordan, the CEO of Ornua, is the guest today on the Business Impact Podcast. And you're very welcome, John. Good morning, Emmett, and very much appreciate the invite to take part in your podcast with your growing listenership. Uh, Delighted for the opportunity to talk maybe a little bit about Ornua and what life is like today and uh, since you confessed to your age of getting vaccinated this week, I was vaccinated the week before. Oh, God, pulling rank. <laughs> it's, you know, one of these things where um, a bit of seniority in age maybe has a slight advantage. So uh, delighted, delighted that there's light at the end of this uh, COVID tunnel, hopefully. 
Yes, John, and let me just um, introduce you more fully to our listeners. You were appointed to your role in 2018. You previously headed up Ornua Foods in Europe, Middle East, Africa, and Asia. And before that, you were chief executive of DPI Speciality Foods, which is a division of Ornua and the third largest speciality food distributor in the United States. You also work for several years as marketing director of consumer foods at Ornua, and you hold an MSc from UCD. I should, of course, also dutifully mention now, John, I think we want to kick off a little bit about the company. I've mentioned some of the history, and it, it is an incredible history. It, it kind of grew out of a very difficult time in Ireland in the 1950s when agricultural exports were far more central to the Irish economy than they are now. But there's been a, you know, a lot of change, a new brand name, obviously, over recent years. Can you just, for our listeners' benefit, bring us up to speed and tell us a little bit more about our new at the company? I suppose it's a, it's a business with an incredible legacy. It started back in 1961, so actually 17th of May 1961, the company is 60 years old this year. And it was started by, by the government as a state agency with the aim of marketing Irish dairy products overseas. Its first CEO was uh, Sir Anthony O'Reilly, the man who led the team that actually created the Kerrygold brand, which is a great story in itself. But when Ireland joined the European Union in 1973, it was no longer allowed that the government would, would be involved in the business. So it became a cooperative. At the time, it was Board Bonia Cooperative. It went to the Irish Dairy Board, and today it's called Ornua. And we're still a cooperative. And our eight major shareholders are, in turn, the dairy processing co-ops in Ireland. So Arabon, Arivo, Carberry, Dairygold, Glambia, Lakelands, North Cork, and Tipperary. Those eight businesses are, are the majority shareholders of Ornua. They, in turn, are owned by 14,000 Irish dairy farming families. So what we see is Irish dairy farming families producing the best quality milk in the world. It's processed through those eight co-ops into cheese, butter, powder, and other end products in some of the best factories in the world, given the level of investment that's been put in over the last number of years. And then Ornua buys that product. We take titles to those goods, and we sell those products through our two businesses, our ingredients business, and our brand business. And as you said, Emmett, global sales about 2.3 billion, which is roughly half and half in our ingredients division and half in our consumer foods division. And in terms of getting this brand known out there, has it been a challenge to kind of get the name familiarized? And I suppose in one sense, Irish consumers are important, but they're not pivotal to what you do. So is it hard to kind of get that balance right of getting the name out there, but really where you want the name to be known and is, is the sub-brands that you, you market underneath that Ornua sort of umbrella at the top? Within the Irish context, certainly Ornua as a company name is important in terms of attracting and retaining talent. And certainly I'm with uh, your listenership and I'm a, I'm a, I'm a DCU, UCD, I'm actually a Trinity graduate. But, uh, <laughs> Covering your bases. <laughs> I am. So, so we'll, we'll play fair with all three. You know, in terms of graduates in particular coming out of university, wanting to look for career opportunities, it's important for us that Ornua is high profile. People understand who the business is and that we can attract and retain that talent to grow. But you're right, more importantly, it's what about our business, in particular on our food side. People know the Kerrygold brand. Uh, we also own other brands like Pilgrim Choice Cheddar in the UK. That's the number two cheddar in the UK. And on our ingredient side, it's really about Ornua, the business on a B2B basis. Now, one of the things you've been dealing with, well, actually, there's a whole litany. It's been incredible. You only came in in 2018, John, but you, you certainly picked an interesting era to be managing this business. We've had COVID, obviously, we've mentioned in the intro. We've had the changeover from President Trump to President Biden and the whole impact in the tariffs area. We had Brexit. I mean, 
you probably will find the next 10 years, once we get over the pandemic, hopefully will be slightly smoother. But who knows what's around the corner? So in terms of dealing with those three challenges I've mentioned, COVID, Brexit and the tariffs and the whole US political scene, because I know that the US is very important market to you. Can you give our listeners any sense of, you know, how you've been managing these three, which was the more insoluble one, you know, how they all sort of impacted on the business over the last year or two? If I look back over that three-year period, that's a lot to deal with. But it's likely there's something else coming in the next three-year period. Uh, and I suppose as leaders of business, our jobs are to take those challenges that come, you know, ride that wave and make the right business decisions repeatedly to get you into a better place. You know, if you go back to pre-COVID, so go back to late 2019, and we're looking at our business into 2020, we're talking about Brexit and US tariffs and Brexit, huge issues to deal with. UK is a huge, important market for us. We employ a thousand people there. If you go into Tesco's or Sainsbury's or Iceland and buy a packet of cheese off the shelf, it's come from our business. So typically it's British cheese, but it's packed in our our facility in Manchester. We're the the largest private label packer of cheese in the UK. And we were dealing with Brexit for four years, trying to risk mitigate what the outcome would be. And it wasn't until December 2019 that we finally got clarity on what that was. Then out of nowhere came Donald Trump and his tariffs of European products into the US. And that was designed to slow trade down between Europe and the US in response to an Airbus and Boeing dispute between the two countries, between Europe and the US. And it's really interesting. One of the products that the Trump administration decided to put tariff on, a 25% tariff on, was European butter. But 90% of butter that comes from Europe into the US is actually Kerrygold butter, comes from Ireland, with the number two butter brand in the United States. So what was meant as a European tariff actually was a Kerrygold tariff. And then you layer COVID on top of it. And I suppose certainly on the tariff one, um, it had the desired impact for a while. It slowed down our sales. It made us less competitive on shelf. It put our price point up on shelf per packet. But COVID blew all that out of the water. And COVID is a really interesting dynamic to see how consumer buying behavior changed. And I think, Emma, it'll be really interesting over the next 12, 24, 36 months to see how consumer buying behavior uh, changes in that period of time. So we all went, you and I and everybody listening, from March 2020, went from a life where we were eating out, then takeaways and, and some dining at home, to 100% at home. So all your calorie consumption happened at home. And over the past 15 months, that has varied, depending on the state of lockdown in different countries. But what will it be like afterwards? You know, we're all talking about dynamic working, flexible working, we'll be in the office part of the time, at home some of the time, less travel. What does that mean for our eating patterns as well? And I think that'll, that'll be really interesting to watch over the next few years. And John, if we could just go back a second to the tariffs, I'd be interested to, to hear what you have to say about this. Like you, your own earnings went up by 50% EBITDA, group EBITDA in the 2020 financial highlights. Now, there used to be a big debate where President Trump used to say, at least, and this is where you come in, he say a lot of the companies are eating the tariffs and they're not passing them on to their final end customers. I mean, how did you guys manage that piece? First, I presume the challenge was you didn't know how long this regime was going to last. And that's very important in these situations. So, so how did you manage that tariff that you're talking about sort of internally and, and how you operated in the market in the US at the time? So what we try to do as a cooperative is we're the same as every company facing out to the market. We want to capture as much value as we can in the market through selling our products and our service and our goods. As a co-op, though, what we try to do then is pass back that profit and that value to our shareholders or our members through product price and through through bonuses. So when it came to the tariffs, 
we pretty much just went out to retailers and said, there's a 25% tariff on our our products. We can't absorb that in supply chain because ultimately it will impact 14,000 Irish farming families in terms of their income. And therefore, we are passing it on in full to the consumer. So the reality was, and we made this point to the U.S. administration, that the tariff was impacting the U.S. consumer having to pay increased shelf prices. The immediate impact in Jan, Feb 2020 was a slowdown in our sales. But then when COVID happened, sales went through the roof because all our consumption happened at home, even at that higher price. So it was fortunate, and you need a lot of luck in business, as I'm sure you'll appreciate. It was fortunate for us uh, if there ever was such a thing, and, and even saying it now sounds wrong, but the timing of tariff and COVID overlapped, and that saw an increase in our sales. Kerrygold globally is selling 10 million packets of cheese and butter a week. 10 million packets of Irish cheese and butter a week under the Kerrygold brand around 110 countries. So it's been a phenomenal success for us. And I suppose now the, the, the key is how do we capitalize on that growth we've had in the last 12 to 15 months? Um, have we new consumers that have come in and tried Kerrygold and said, wow, this is fantastic. And will we retain them or how many and we train them? And how do we grow that customer base as well? And if COVID hadn't come along and you had to wear those Trump tariffs for another while, I mean, how damaging could it have been? I mean, you obviously didn't know this was coming. So what were you saying initially when when the news first broke? Were you, were you saying to everyone, look, this is going to be one hell of a tough period ahead? Or, or did you think it probably won't be forever? Or what, what, was your, what was your own sense of it at the time? Sweaty armpits, Emmett. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> There's an image. <laughs> yeah, nervous, really nervous, though. It didn't. Uh, reduce our sales, it slowed our growth rate, which is an interesting difference. So we still saw growth, but at a much slower pace than we'd had. And it's funny, you know, Kerrygold in 2018 became Ireland's first ever billion euro brand. Um, and they're the brands that, you know, the Nestle's, Unilever's were the top of their billion euro brands. And actually, in fact, that, that was the time I got to meet Sir Anthony O'Reilly. Oh, yeah. Tell us about that. I'd love to hear about that. I reached out to him because Kerrygold, the brand he started, um, had reached a billion euro sales. So I actually got to meet him uh, at his house for lunch, which was a fantastic, fantastic thing. And I mean, he was so passionate about Kerrygold and Irish dairy for something that he'd left many, many years ago and obviously a great career since. But in telling the story, and it shows the scale of the world today versus then, in launching Kerrygold, uh, their specific target was they launched it into the Manchester and Liverpool market. <laughs> Could you imagine explaining that to business students today? You know, that you'd, you'd segment it down to, you know, we're ambitious for growth and we're going to launch into the Manchester and Liverpool market. It's phenomenal when you think about that was a huge achievement at the time to actually get on a plane, ship product over, find uh, shops that would list it and put it in your, in, in, on the shelf and, and get consumers to buy it. So incredible to think that it started there. And the real beauty Emmett, of it is that it's because of the product difference. And I, I, tell, I tell this many times, and some of your listeners may have heard it before, apologies, but most demonstrable in the US. So next time you're in the US, get a packet of Land Lakes or some other domestic butter, apologies, Land Lakes. I don't mean to offend you. Put it beside the packet of Kerrygold butter, and they're demonstrably different. American butter is white because it's corn-fed. It's brittle because the fat produced on a corn-based diet is, is different, um, and it's a bit bland. Kerrygold is yellow, it's creamy, it's soft, and it has a completely different flavor, all stemming from grass. And that's because there's only two countries in the world where cows still have a predominantly grass-based diet, Ireland and New Zealand, which is incredible because if you ask a consumer, what do cows eat? 
100 percent of them around the world say grass yeah and if you go to pretty much any restaurant in the u.s grass-fed beef is down as a speciality dish on the menu as opposed to just any other kind of a beef steak you know which is something we don't realize until you get out of the, the small island we live on um, that that's the case you know um i wanted to ask you a little bit more about and thanks for the story but um anthony o'reilly that's really interesting but i wanted to ask you a bit more about kerry gold because you are you often hear this phrase or new our companies like that are custodians of this brand and you don't use that word custodian about other products and other brands so, you know, this is a, a, an Ireland Inc. brand, Kerry Gold. You know, I, I presume virtually any listener who was listening to us knows the brand. Right? It, it's, it's got a credible name recognition. Do you see your, yourselves as custodians of this brand or, 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 you know, and, and you're the managers of it on a daily basis? So how much sort of mystique is there built up in it from your point of view? Or is it just a brand? You're dealing with it every day. It becomes second nature. You know, what, what's your own sense of that, that, that idea? Certainly from me and from many of my colleagues in Arnua. It's far more than just a brand. It's part of you. I can't go on holidays or travel abroad without going into a supermarket. Before lockdown, we went, uh, myself and, and Barbara and the three boys went to Florida. And pretty much on a daily basis, I'd, I'd sneak off and go into a few shops to have a look. Um, <laughs> to look at butter. <laughs> not only look at it, but then fix up the Kerrygold and, and make it presented better on the shelf and maybe squeeze out a bit on, on the shelf. To the point that the kids, and where's that? Down the butter aisle, down the butter aisle, down the butter aisle. And I think, you know, how many of us have gone abroad on holidays, whether you've gone to Lanzarote or to Florida or to Greece or China, uh, wherever you've gone in the world, and you've seen Kerrygold on the shelf, and, and there's a little bit of pride. It's, it's an Irish brand. I think collectively, you know, Irish people are very proud of the fact that uh, it's all over the world. How many brands of Harry Baby t-shirts are there? Or uh, who took the horse to France? Yeah. Uh, you referenced, uh, put a bit of butter on the spuds, Andre. I mean, they're part of Irish, you know, almost folklore and, and our history. Um, so absolutely, we'd view ourselves today as custodians, not only of the brand, but of the business. Um, and that, I think, comes from being a cooperative, Emmett, and the fact that it's farming families, ultimately, that, that, that we're trying to support and, and enhance the lives of here. And if you talk to farmers, they tend to talk long term or talk in generations. How many farms around the country have grandparents, parents, and kids working on them today. You know, it's handed down from generation to generation. And we feel a little bit of that responsibility when it comes to our new and in particular the Kerrygold brand. Our job today is, is run the business as best we can, uh, capture as much value as we can out in the marketplace to, to pass that value back down the value chain, but also leave the business in a better place for those that come after us to, to run it in, in years to come. Uh, and indeed, I'm sure many will be UCD graduates as well, Emmett. I'm sure they are. Now, now a lot of um, our listeners are in the marketing era, they're marketeers, and you, you've talked about building it up over the years, that brand. We read every day of the week, various Irish products being launched in Europe, being launched into the US, and it's said kind of slightly blithely, you know, we're, we're, we're going into the US next year, we're, we're going to bring this to the US market, but so many of them you don't hear much about how it went or progressed afterwards. So you guys have managed to build it up over the years. It's been a long haul. As you said, it's now the second biggest butter brand in the United States, which I'm presuming is one of the world's largest butter markets. So what has been the key to building that brand? Like, Why have you succeeded? And what are the learnings for other people trying to market Irish brands in the US? What are the two or three things you might be able to tell them that could help them when they come to that um, stage themselves? What we're passionate about is owning our business. And what I mean by that is telling our story, controlling our brand, controlling our pricing, controlling our marketing, and actually being in charge of what we do. 
we launched into the US back in the 90s. We didn't put Kerrygold butter into the US. We started actually with cheese. We didn't sell our first packet of butter until 1999. Um, so we're an overnight success that took 22 years to get there. Again, it's back to believing in the product. So what we did in the early days was actually spent most of our money having people stand in a supermarket, handing out a scrape of Kerrygold butter on a cracker or a piece of bread and actually getting people to taste it because we believe in the product so much. What I really don't like to see is people saying, we're launching into the US and we've, we have a distributor based out of New York running our business for us. And, you know, you've seen the pattern before where people go to a food show, for example, there's loads of those uh, exhibitions, maybe in New York because it's the closer coast, uh, find a distributor, do a deal and then ship some product out and then hope on a monthly basis that the distributor sends back another order or tells you what's going on. That, I believe, won't succeed not just in the US, but any market, you have to, if you're serious about a market, if you really want to grow, you have to show the passion and commitment and you have to spend time on it yourself. Now, fine, you need a distributor for the infrastructure, but you still need to spend time on a business yourself. And that's certainly something Arnua did. And we're very focused on a couple of, we're in 110 markets, um, but you can't win in 110 markets. Um, but we're very clear about the markets we do want to win in, particularly UK, US and Germany would be the top three for us. Has your co-op ownership been a real help where, yes, you may be burning cash in the first few years of getting something like Kerrygold established, but you can do that. There is a patience. There is a, a long-term time horizon. Was that kind of a, another key ingredient in, in making the brand really hit a kind of a critical mass? Well, that's an interesting one because we're the number one butter brand in Germany and have been for probably 15 years at this stage. And historically, that was the, the jewel in the crown Germany. It's still a really important market for us. And I remember I actually joined Ornu as a, a grad trainee. I left for a little while. Someone says I got time off for good behavior, but I left for a little while and came back because it's a business I love so much. But our discussions, you know, 15 years ago are in many ways the same as we're having today, which are Germany. Back then it was Germany's a really important market. Where's the next Germany? What market are we seeding so that in 10 or 15 years time, if we have the scale and size of Germany, we'll have two strings to our bow. And indeed, the US was that. There was a commitment. Um, so I wouldn't say it's any less ambitious, but there was a commitment and a very clear plan to execute around growing the US. So it didn't happen by chance. It happened by very deliberate set of actions. So as long as we hit those milestones, people you know, had the view that the US could, could be a great market. Um, it also happened actually at the same time that, that over that last 10 years, our German business has doubled. So what was a great market is now an even better market uh, because of continued investment in it. So I think it's important that I don't think uh, our shareholders are any less demanding than any business, but they probably do have a slightly longer time horizon, but still as demanding in terms of performance and making sure we hit it. And then the piece today is where are those markets for the future? So in 10, 15, 20 years time, what other markets will be big volume, big value markets for Irish dairy products uh, being exported? Yes, and, and we all hear ad nauseum that every large company in Europe has to have a China strategy and if you're not in China, the biggest economy in the world, or certainly the second largest economy, depending on what uh, metric you use, right? So you, you hear a lot about, you must have a China strategy, you must have a China strategy. I'm sure every CEO has got a pain in their head <laughs> hearing this, um, urging on them. But the way you've approached China has been slightly different. And talk to our listeners a little bit about that. You don't see it as quite a one-way traffic situation. Maybe you could uh, just delve into that topic for us for a second or two. Like every business, we, we've recently mapped out our, our updated our strategic plan and China actually doesn't appear in it. 
um, as a headline. It's, it's there. We do business in China, but it's not a key strategic priority. And in one way, that sort of terrified us that, you know, are we doing something wrong? Are we missing out? You know, every other dairy business in the world, you know, or many of them have China high in their priorities and say that's where they're going to, to make some really good wins. The issue for Ornua, I suppose, really is, is there a fit with our product range and our skill set versus what the consumer is looking for? So no question, in China, there's a huge demand for dairy. And generally, it falls into two broad areas. One is infant formula which Ornua don't compete in, uh, very deliberately don't. There are some great world-class brands, and we don't think we've got the expertise to, to compete with them. So, so leave that infant formula to, to them. And the second area that's actually really strong is fresh product. I've been to China a few times. The really interesting one for me is if you went down into a supermarket and went down the aisle for yogurt, this might sound a bit silly, Emmett, but... I'm getting worried about you, John, between the butter and the <laughs> now we're going to yogurts. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I spend so much time in shops. I mean, and that's, look, that's where the consumers are. But if you go down the, the yogurt aisle in a Chinese supermarket, it's incredibly sophisticated. Amazing array of brands, really innovative product, innovative packaging, big spend, big investment, and it's fresh product. So it, it's, you know, short shelf life. That's not something that from Ireland we can compete with. So number one, we can't ship yogurt from Ireland to China and expect to compete. It just doesn't work. But also this sort of perception that China is an emerging economy or emerging market, it's a leader in many areas. Um, so for our newest perspective, we don't have the products to fit uh, the needs and wants of the Chinese consumer. And therefore, it's not a priority market for us. And as they hopefully, hopefully we haven't called that wrong. And, and to be fair to you, you you are looking at other emerging markets elsewhere in the globe. So it's not a sort of an emerging market issue. You spot opportunities in places like Africa, for example. You know, I'm certainly guilty at times of, you know, talking about Africa is almost like it's a country. It's not. It's it's 50 plus countries and uh, incredibly diverse, really interesting place. Uh, I mean, one of the very fortunate things of working for Anua is that, you know, I've had the, the benefit and, and luxury of being able to travel many, many parts of the world. And I've spent a lot of time in Africa and seen many countries and, and some of them are just fantastic They blow you away in terms of the friendliness of people, the culture, the growth and population, the emerging economies that are, I think it's some really exciting parts to that. But certainly from an African perspective, uh, if you look at North Africa, a place like Algeria and Egypt, there's a really strong demand for cheddar cheese. In fact, Algeria is Ireland's second biggest export country after the UK for cheddar cheese. A fact that people really seem surprised at that cheddar is bought into Algeria and they actually use it to make processed cheese. So it's a raw material for making processed cheese. A bit like the old triangles of cheese that you'd get here in tinfoil, little circular tub, you'd have six or eight. So that's a big consumption in, in North Africa, particularly because it's a shelf-stable product uh, in warm countries. If you then go to Central and Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, it's much more of a, um, I suppose that there's a subsistence degree to it uh, and we sell a lot of milk powder everything from a 10 gram sachet. So a little 10 grams, tiny little packet, which is called, if you're in Nigeria, it's called the lick, where consumers understand the nutritional benefit of milk powder and literally open a 10 gram sachet and lick it off the tongue dry uh, for the nutritional hit. They may use it for making yogurt. They use it in tea. They drink a lot of, actually a lot of tea and spoon it into tea, or they may reconstitute for milk. And what they're looking for as consumers is trust in a brand product that they know is healthy, is consistent, it's safe, and won't go sour on them. And if you think about that, Emmett, and, and I've stood in many of those markets where you know there's no shops, it's, it's open air markets, there's no temperature control, 
a, a really vibrant, wonderful places to, to travel and see, challenging to live. But you, you find a consumer, they've literally got a dollar in their pocket, a dollar in their pocket, and they want to buy milk to bring home to the family. And they'll buy Kerrygold. And you ask them why. I trust it. I know it's safe. I know it's healthy. And I know it won't go sour. Because if it's gone sour or the family don't like it, he hasn't got another dollar to buy another packet of milk on for tomorrow. So really, really interesting markets. And I think in terms of population growth, uh, consumption, dietary habits, I think Ireland can offer a lot into the continent of Africa in terms of dairy supply. Now, the fascinating is it's a different type of shopping. Uh, the one, the kind of shopping we do in the West is so disposable. You know, it's a totally different experience. Now, one of the things I wanted to ask you, I worked for several years myself in IDA Ireland, and one of the things we tried to market was Ireland itself. You know, there was this idea of Ireland Inc. nation branding, and there's a lot of writing about that and how you do that and so on. Now, where you guys come in, um, where Ornua come in, is you know, in many respects, you can see yourselves as sellers of Irish brands, Kerrygold, it's so tied up, joined at the hip with Ireland. And, and I suppose I want to explore that a bit. How important is Ireland, you know, if something is going badly here, if you've got like the horse meat scandal, or there's a, there used to be BSE many years ago, uh, and I won't go into all those <laughs> bleak periods for, for the Irish agri world, but I mean, does something that happens to Ireland Inc. impact upon the various brands you have at Ornua? Are, are you kind of in step with what's happening at that level and how important is, is that connection? Yeah, critically important. And I suppose, you know, Ireland is seen as a safe food environment, creator of, of good food products, whether that's dairy or indeed others. And while Ornua is known as an Irish business, Kerrygold is, is seen as an Irish brand for sure. It's a high quality dairy product that comes from Ireland. Therefore, the risk of a scandal or a... Um, a traumatic event in Ireland could have a ripple effect for all of us across uh, the entire dairy chain. But that said, the standards to which Irish farmers and Irish um, manufacturers operate is incredible, like truly incredible. The one I love to talk about, Emmett, is, you know, people have, pers have perceptions about, particularly about farmers, I suppose. They're an amazing group of people. Uh, Chagask, who are world research uh, leaders, uh, particularly in the dairy space. Chagas hold an annual day, or used to pre-COVID, a day in Moore Park, where all of the studies they're doing, uh, through all the research they're doing, is put on display and talked through at, at boards. Uh, and people walk through it and talk to and explain some of the, the learnings. 12,500 farmers turn up for that day every year. 12,500 farmers. The only thing that's on offer is education. It's knowledge. That's all that's been given out. So... Irish farmers are keen to learn. They're well-educated. They're, they're, they want to ensure that the land they're managing is in a better place when they hand it on to the next generation. Um, so they're really great custodians of the land, really high-quality dairy products, uh, milk, and, and really well-invested manufacturing facilities. So it's all interlinked, but the, the level of investment, the level of controls and risk mitigation in the Irish economy or Irish dairy sector are probably second to none in the world limit. Now, John, unfortunately, time is a little bit against us. It's been a fascinating, discursive conversation from Butter Lanes to Florida, back over to Africa, China. We've really had a, a 360 journey here on this, but we are a bit tight on time. So I'm going to have to just briefly ask you a little bit about the future of the company or NUA. And I suppose the things that occur to me are, would you ever buy another brand and bring it into the stable? And could the company ever go and become a publicly quoted company? So there are two things that... I would see as potential avenues, but maybe they're not things on your agenda at all. But uh, tell tell me and tell the audience what you think is uh, the future holds for the company in your view. 
Well, I'll take the suspense out of that last piece, Emma. So um, <laughs> there's certainly no IPO in our newest future. We're cooperative and fundamentally we believe in the principles of the cooperative. That's about creating value for farming families and how we capture value in the marketplace and pass that back down the value chain to farming families, uh, basically in the milk check as best we can. Uh, in terms of the future, I, I would be very, very positive uh, for our new as a business. You know, if you go back to the problems that you talked about Brexit, we've clarity where we stand and, and we can manage around that. Uh, we've had suspension and hopefully in due course abolition of US tariffs. Vaccine rollouts are uh, happening at pace around the developed world. Uh, important that they get to developing worlds as well. But we'll see the opening up of economies. And in terms of our new as a business, we have a very clear strategy. Uh, we're clear in terms of how we'd like to, to win and capture value in Kerrygold, in Pilgrim's Choice, and indeed in our ingredients B2B business. Uh, so a very positive future for Arnua, strong growth in the years ahead, Emmett, and uh, a call out to all that wonderful talent that listens to your podcast that uh, if you're looking for a great career in food uh, with an international business, make sure you keep Arnua on your radar. Okay. That's brilliant, John. Thank you very much. It's been a tough few years. So if you can come through this, I think you're ready and uh, you're ready to take on any future challenges that may be down the line. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. It's been an interesting journey. Remember the butter name. Um, I don't need to repeat it because it's so well known. Um, enjoy the, your lunch or dinner, whoever you're having later on to our listeners and whatever way they want to have that. And we'll talk to you again. And thank you very much, John Jordan, the CEO of our new for being on today's podcast. <laughs>